Look around, what do you see? Cars, lots of them. And guess what? They're probably on Auto Trader. Whether you're into timeless classics or the latest trends, did somebody say solar-powered, eco-friendly, vegan, leather-wrapped, aromatherapy-scented, disco ball-equipped, self-driving car? If you see it on the road, you can likely find it on Auto Trader. Big cars, small cars, blue cars, new cars, used cars, electric cars, and one day, maybe even flying cars. With millions of options to choose from, buying a car becomes a whole lot easier. See it. Find it. Auto Trader. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here too. And it's a super awesome, amazing last episode of the year episode. I can't think of one that could have been better than this, Chuck. <laughs> uh, I guess, people, it's, it's a spoiler of what the show is about already, because you've seen the title as a listener. Right. Uh, but this is courtesy of the Stuff You Should Know Army. Came straight from them. We got emails that said, hey, the Stuff You Should Know Army is chattering about about Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have been shivering with anticipation. Very nice. <laughs> and so uh, this is it. Stuff You Should Know Army. Yeah. Um, oh, and also, in return, you guys, if you haven't already, go donate to CoEd because we're running out of time. These are the last few days of the That's year. That's right. And uh, our pledge drive, our fun drive, I don't know what you call it, our awesome drive. Fun drive. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the D is uh, in parentheses. <laughs> um, it ends uh, on January 1st or December 31st. At 11.59 p.m.? Who knows? <laughs> but you can go to cooperativeforeducation.org slash S-Y-S-K and donate, and we're going to reach that million-dollar goal. Uh, I just know it. I totally agree, and I'm super excited for this episode. Our year is winding down. Yeah. Uh, just so you know, in real time, you know, Josh and I always take a nice, long, extended Christmas break from recording, and it has gotten bigger and bigger every year. <laughs> <laughs> and this year, I'm not even going to say how long we have off from recording, but it's a no. nice, unprecedented break. It's a chunk of change, and we're we're we love doing the show, but that Christmas December downtime is a wonderful thing for us. Yeah, we work hard throughout the year, so hard. So you better treat us right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's go start talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, quick question: Are you a virgin? <laughs> yeah, so I guess I should quickly go over, we should both kind of go over our history with this. Um, I have never been to a live in the movie theater uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show showing, uh, which includes, as you will see, the shadow cast, all the fun of the audience participation. I have seen it. Uh, I remember when it finally came to home video. It was. It, it took a long time. It wasn't like one of those that was just always out there. Oh, I remember movies like that. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a, like a lot of fanfare when Rocky Horror finally came to home video, mm-hmm. and I really got into it for a while there, watching it with friends and watching it at home to the tune of seeing it. I've probably seen the movie on at home probably six or eight times. Oh, okay, yeah. So I am technically a virgin, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I I'm gonna go now. Like I have to go now because Atlanta has one of the great. <laughs> Uh, sort of legendary theaters that still do, do this twice a month. Yeah, I think the the group that puts on the shadow cast is called Lips Down on Dixie, mm-hmm. the Plaza Theater. Um, yeah, it sounds like a good time for sure. What's your I, deal? I have um, not ever been either, and I thought that I wasn't a virgin. I thought if you uh, had seen the movie, you were not a virgin. No, mm-hmm. you're right. If you you have to go to a live screening of it. Um, to to not be a virgin any longer. Um, so, yeah, I've seen it a bunch of times, too. I love the soundtrack. Soundtrack is really good to clean Great. the house, too, I have to say. Um, 
Like, you will be dancing with your Swiffer <laughs> very quickly. Um, but, yeah, it's a great movie. I watched it again this morning. It was really bizarre to watch it in the morning. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not. it just doesn't jive with that. I, I but, watched uh, uh, quite a bit of it today, too. Uh, not all of it, but I kind of wanted to make sure I saw the musical numbers because I just love those. And I also, as many times as I've seen it, it's been a long, long time. So I couldn't exactly remember the third act as well. Uh, I think it's one of those films that the first two acts are a little more famous than the third act. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the time warp is the second number. Well, third, I guess, if you if you count the beginning uh, song, which we're going to talk about in a second. But, yeah, you got to. You know, the, and then, uh, you know, Tim Curry's legendary Sweet Transvestite song and that entrance and that performance. Oh, just man. Unbelievably had it, had it. great. Had yeah. <laughs> Come up to the lab, see what's on the slab. <laughs> I mean, like, he's just, he couldn't have been more perfect. And, and oh, as God, we'll see so in a good. second, he was also not an obvious choice to cast as Dr. Frankenfurter as the character he plays. So let's get into this, okay? For people who've never seen Rocky Horror Picture Show, it is a bizarre musical um, camp fest mm-hmm. that uh, Dave, who helped us out with this one, describes as a, a send-up which I, I know intuitively what send-up means, but I've never seen, like, an actual <laughs> definition of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So I think it's—I I made, I made up my own, if I if you don't mind me sharing it. Okay. Uh, affectionate mockery. Yeah, it's like an, an affectionate homage slash mockery, I think. Right. So it's a send-up of 50s sci-fi and horror movies, like B-movies. Um, things like Forbidden Planet, mm-hmm. um, The Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, all of the the canon of Ed Wood, um, all that stuff. Uh, and it's so it's kind of a tribute to that, but it, it's also, like I said, super camp, and it's definitely its own thing. So much so that it was made in 1975, and it does not seem like something from the past. It has a timeless quality to it, weirdly enough. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. It's sort of in that um, sort of same weird rock opera thing as Tommy, where when you look at Tommy, it looks um, sort of dated and old-fashioned, but also also somehow still sort of of its time and futuristic, or of today's time and futuristic. But not at all anywhere near as serious, or not serious at all like Tommy took itself. It's not serious. It's just neat. Yeah, I guess Tommy took itself fairly seriously. Um, so uh, the plot, if I, we can talk about the plot, right? There's yeah, no... I mean, I don't necessarily think we should give everything away. No, uh, definitely. I think not. we can nutshell it. Uh, but the idea is that there are these two characters, Brad and Janet, who are very uh, straight laced, um, sort of uh, maybe rubes, but sort of two young naive. Uh, characters that are had been to a wedding and are talking about getting married themselves, and they go on mm-hmm. a little road trip. Mm-hmm. And it's a very sort of classic tropey thing. You know, the car gets a flat, and the only thing around is this creepy castle in the rain. Mm-hmm. And they knock on the door, and all sorts of crazy, funny, fun sexual hijinks, sci-fi hijinks ensue. <laughs> yeah, so they start out as just as white bread as you can be, and yeah. then by the end of the movie— they're <laughs> like they're they're both wearing garter belts and uh-huh. stockings and, <laughs> and um, bikini b- briefs and corsets. Yeah, um, like they they've just gone through the sexual transformation, but also, you know, I think uh, a life transformation. I guess, and I want to say also, there's plenty of analysis and like um, you know, uh, writing about subtext and all that stuff. This has always struck me as one of those movies that like, it's just not meant for that. You're not yeah. supposed to like try to look too deep into it. You're just supposed to enjoy it on its I, face. I totally agree. So again, not to give too much away if you haven't seen it, but the the head of this uh, castle is Dr. Frank N. Furter, mm-hmm. who is the Tim Curry character, uh, who in that great song, Sweet Transvestite, the lyrics are Sweet Transvestite from Transsexual Transylvania. Uh, as we learn in the film, and it's, it's just sort of goofy that they threw the sci-fi element in there, which is... Really fun, but uh, transsexual is the home planet mm-hmm. of Frankenfurter, and Transylvania is the galaxy. Right. And so he's sort of Frankensteined this Ubermensch uh, on, on the slab, 
<laughs> and uh, that's kind of the plot. I mean, all kinds of uh, seductions take place over the course of the movie at various times, different characters seducing one another. There's a lot of gender fluidity and sort of um, – it was a movie ahead of its time in a lot of ways in that respect. And, and since it's become obviously a, a huge movie in the LGBTQ community. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that's the movie. Uh, and it didn't actually start out a movie. It started out a stage play um, in London, actually. So the guy who plays Riff Raff is named Richard O'Brien. Riff Raff is Dr. Frankenfurter's, e- like, Igor-like assistant. He has a huge hunchback and, like, stringy hair and, like, dark circles under his eyes. And um, He was 31 years old, by the way, when this got kicked off. Oh, really? He always just struck me as looking super old. Mm-hmm. But then when I kind of... You know, look today with more of a critical eye. I was like, he doesn't look old, old, but the circles under his eyes, it kind of made him up right. to, to look a little creepier. But I, sure. he just, I never pictured that guy as being in his early 30s. No, and actually, if you see later interviews with him, he stayed basically the same, yeah. looking the same <laughs> yeah. from that point on. Um, not dark circles under his eyes, but he didn't seem to age at all. Yeah, but that guy was named uh, Richard, or is named Richard O'Brien. He was the creator of the whole thing. And played a, a pretty big role in the movie as well. Um, and I believe he played Riff Raff in the stage production too, right? Yeah. Uh, so okay. he was a New Zealander who moved to London in the 70s, in the early 70s. And, you know, didn't have great prospects for jobs. He was a stuntman for a little while. He got uh, some uh, gigs acting on stage, but not a lot of them. And was basically bored. Like, he's been on record saying, like, this was sort of like me doing the crossword, mm-hmm. was me writing these uh, songs, these sort of um, kind of fun and funny songs about uh, those sci-fi B-movies that he loved from the 1950s. This was before Netflix, by the way. <laughs> this before Netflix. So the, the whole thing that kicked this off was really uh, auspicious. Um there, there. He was friends with some people who were musicians, and there was an EMI party. The record label had a big party, mm-hmm. and his musician friends said, "Hey, do you want to record a, a song to play at this EMI party?" And this is like a truck driver, stuntman, actor that they're asking. But I guess he had developed enough of a reputation for writing cool songs that they asked him, and he wrote um, science fiction. Double Feature, which is the song that's sung uh, during the opening credits of the movie, Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, where even if you haven't seen the movie, I'm sure you're familiar with the iconic um, disembodied bright red lips against white teeth on a black background. Yeah. That comes from the intro of the movie. Um, And when he played this song... uh, he, I guess he got enough of a, a response to it that he decided to kind of take that song and some of his other songs and cobble them together into like a loose plot that really never got more fleshed out and ended up writing a stage play out of the whole thing. Yeah, it was called The Rocky Horror Show uh, after, I think the working title was They Came, is it Denton High or Denton High School? Uh, Denton High. Okay, They Came from Denton High, which I guess the idea was that Brad and Janet were from Denton because the church at the beginning is Denton Episcopalian Church. Yeah. Okay. So they changed the title. I think his friend was stage director. He showed it to Jim Sharman said, they came from Denton High is not a great title. Uh, And the name of the uh, Frankenstein-like, you know, model with perfect abs that Frankenfurter has built Mm -hmm. is named Rocky Horror. So that's got a ring to it. Let's call it the Rocky Horror Show. And they did. Uh, apparently, it was just in time for previews, so they were able to change the name at the last minute. And that was, man, that was a close call if you really stop and think about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jim Sharman and uh, Richard O'Brien um, managed to talk their way into, like, a space above the Royal Court Theater in London. And the Royal Court Theater was, like, a serious, legitimate playhouse. Um, and above it was an experimental theater that I think sat— 63 or 68 people, and they started performing this thing, and within weeks, it it was like the thing to see in London. They sold out, and again, it's not that tough to sell out 63 or 68 seats. It was more like the buzz around it was Mm -hmm. just so 
it just so gripping and it happened so quickly that it just took off like a rocket and in very short order they started touring they they sent a touring company to cities all over Europe um showing people this thing and everybody was going nuts for it yeah and then another turn of uh fate i guess you could say Tim Curry was an actor at the Royal Court Theater, mm-hmm. um, obviously not some you know huge name at the time, and was cast because of that association with the Royal Court as Dr. Frank N. Furter, uh, yep. who was originally going to, uh, he was going to play it German because Frank N. Furter obviously is a German, uh, German word, but uh, I think in the interview he talked about it and said that he... He was experimenting around with accents, and he found this the posh British thing mm-hmm. really worked and said the character should sound like the Queen. Yeah, I saw that too. And uh, was originally also supposed to be more of a classic mad scientist, white lab coat uh, kind of doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in another wonderful twist of fate, uh, they hired a woman named Sue Blaine to do the costumes mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, they needed to bring this. They didn't have a lot of money at first. Uh, we'll talk about the movie budget too, but Sue Blaine basically said, "You know, I got almost nothing," and uh, came up with these idea for the rip fishnet hose. And I think she had worked with uh, Tim Curry before on a play in Scotland, right? Where he played a character in drag, and she was like, "You look good in heels and a corset." Mm-hmm. So, if it hadn't have been for all those sort of weird things coming together. Uh, it might have been a, a German mad scientist in a white lab coat, which is really hard to imagine once you know Frankenfurter. This movie wouldn't be it, it, we wouldn't be talking about it right now if they if Maybe there not. had been a white lab coat. I, <laughs> I'm sure of it. You no, know, really, I I don't. I think Tim Curry's character was such a huge part of. Oh yeah. The popularity of it that yeah, it just wouldn't have been the same. And by the way, Sue Blaine's. Um, uh, costuming budget for the original stage version was four hundred dollars, yeah. <laughs> which that, is peanuts even back in nineteen seventy three. Was too. it pounds or dollars? Let's say uh, pounds. All right, so maybe a few uh, extra shekels. Yeah, that's <laughs> another thing too. We should say there is a lot of m- made up information about yeah. Rocky Horror and yeah. its origins and like the real story of it. So uh, it's all fun. But um, you have to, like, really kind of wade through it. And if something sounds like, no way, you may want to stop and say, probably no way. <laughs> but it's still fun. So we'll mention things here or there, but I think we should kind of give, like, a little caveat to them like that. How, how about that? Yeah, and this is one of those fan-centric uh, pieces of entertainment where I'm sure there are people out there be, that will be fact-checking us. Right. That's the kindest way to say it. (laughs) I'm literally sweating because I'm so nervous about that. Uh, I think we should take a break, and then uh, very quickly when we come back, I will retell my uh, Tim Curry story from Los Angeles. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy 
and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Learning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you should All right. Uh, we're back. I uh, know I've said this before, but I think I can't not say it again. Uh, I actually had two Rocky Horror sort of uh, run-ins in L.A. when mm-hmm. I lived there. And when I got my cat, Laron, who was dearly departed, I yeah. uh, found Laron in a dumpster behind my apartment, took him in, took him to the vet. And as I was checking out at my vet, I look over, and there's Tim Curry. And when wow. I say look over, he was like two feet from me. <laughs> wow. Was he staring at you? He was, I don't know if he was or not. He was shorter than I thought, which was kind of surprising because, mm-hmm. I don't know, this character just seems so larger than life. Well, he was wearing like six-inch platform heels. Yeah, that as well. But when Tim Curry is like, I think he's listed at 5'9", and that's usually fudging a little bit. Like, he was shorter than I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went to write a check to pay for it, and I was holding the run, <laughs> and I said, would you mind holding my kitten? And he was like, absolutely. And Laurent was really funny looking. He had these huge ears. He had a a gray back, uh, and the rest of him was black. And he eventually grew in all black hair. I have no idea. It was kind of a silver back. Mm-hmm. But he picked him up. <laughs> That's why LA's so great, man. The weirdest things happen in the most unlikely places. He stared at him and said, Laurent, you have very dramatic ears. And he went, and look at your back. You look like a baboon. (laughs) (laughs) And he held her on while I wrote the check, and I, like, skipped out of there. It was, like, one of the great days. So that's my I've never heard that story, man. Really? I don't know if you've told it before. Oh, I don't see how I couldn't have held on to that one for 15 years. Like, I really... It rings zero maybe, bells maybe whatsoever. Not. And there's enough dimensions to it that something should be like, oh, yeah, I've heard that one. <laughs> this this story has not been told before, and it is a fantastic story. All right. Well, there's my Tim Curry story. What's the other Rocky Horror run-in you had? Well, I know I've talked about um, that I was friends with Meatloaf's daughter for a little while in L.A. Oh, uh, yes, Sweet Potato? Th- <laughs> I can't believe you're laughing like that at that one. That's funny. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, I was sort of friends with her and her boyfriend for a very short time in L.A. There was just a weird crossover where my friend's girlfriend worked for Meat's ex-wife, uh, and he did want to be called Meat, by the way. But I never met him, but I hung out at his house a few times, mm-hmm. uh, and he had a TV that came out of a case at the foot of his bed. Oh, I've seen that before. Via remote control. Uh, you know, I was pretty astounded at the time. <laughs> I should say, I've never seen it in person. I've seen it, like, on, on TV. Yeah. It was cool, though, walking around his house, like, rock memorabilia and uh, sure. all kinds of stuff. I, I wanted to meet him, but never got a chance. I like the Tim Curry story better. It's better, for sure. So, uh, where did we leave off? Oh, the stage play is on fire. It's on right? fire. And they and they toured it, and Tim Curry played it. Uh, Frankenfurter everywhere except Australia, I think. Oh, really? Okay. So the original cast toured it. They didn't have a traveling cast? That's amazing. No, they were pretty, as you'll see when they went to make the movie, they were very loyal to that original cast as much right. as they could be. Yeah, for sure. So um, 
1974, they moved it over to Los Angeles. And I guess then, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Most of the cast went over to Los Angeles, including Tim Curry. Uh, but one of the th- people they added in Los Angeles was Meatloaf. Yeah. And I never realized, but, you know, Meatloaf is pretty famous. He was not famous. He was maybe a rising star at the time, but he yeah. really gained his fame after Rocky Horror. And this is a really weird choice for him. But he did it, and he stuck to it, and uh, it was a really good move, too, because he's got this whole other legend that, like, his actual other fan base probably couldn't care less about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he has, like, the Rocky Horror fans, two yeah. separate fan bases, <laughs> because he made this very smart choice back in 1974. I would argue three fan bases, because he's got a bunch of, like, creepy guys who only know him as the guy from Fight Club. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Robert Paulson. Yeah. <laughs> we we have a friend who listens with that name. I know, and he's he's heard it all. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm not going to say it again. Uh, all right, so the um, they go to L.A. Meat comes on board. Mm-hmm. It it's uh, a big hit everywhere they go. So of course the movie industry comes uh, sticking their nose into it, and they say, "Well, why don't you make this into a film?" And so the Rocky Horror Show became the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And they did not have a lot of money for a budget either, but the kind of the cool part of the story is they were offered more budget if they would put some sort of bigger rock and roll stars of the time in the major roles. And O'Brien said, no, I want to keep everybody like basically the same and I'll do it for less money. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, about uh, one and a quarter million. I also saw 1.4 million. Um, And... Even today, and this was Fox, 20th Century Fox. Mm-hmm. That would be like 20th Century Fox giving somebody $6.5 million to make a movie today. It's not like bad. It was a shoestring budget. I mean, well, sure. so shoestring. And poor Sue Blaine, she had a $400 budget for the stage play originally. She had like a $1,500, $1,600 budget yeah. for the movie. <laughs> well, use the same costume, so she had a leg up there. Yeah, but still, you're not supposed to have to recycle the stage play's costumes for the movie, you know? (laughs) Yeah. All right, so they have their meager budget. They make the film. It's released in September of 1975 as uh, a limited release in some test markets. Reviews weren't great. Uh, It is a very weird—I mean, it's it's amazing, but it's a very weird movie that critics I could see not getting on board with right away before there's, like, a cult established around it. Right. Uh, but then uh, it's remarkable. It never got a nationwide release. Uh, but even Roger Ebert back then gave it a lukewarm review, but said that uh, it belongs on a stage with the performers and audience joining in in a collective send up because word had trickled out that this was starting a little bit here and there. Yeah, I don't know if he was aware of that or not, but or if it, he was just prescient about it. But yeah, I think by 1976. Um, April 1st, 1976, uh, the tradition of showing Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight uh, started in uh, Greenwich Village, actually, at the Waverly Theater. That's right. And um, this this is the thing about Rocky Horror Picture Show. Up to this point, we've been talking about a stage play, a movie, and it's been following a pretty standard trajectory. Um, the movie was just panned and it got shelved, but... They were still showing it here or there because it was weird enough that Greenwich Village would have gone crazy for it. Where Rocky uh, Horror Picture Show differs is what happens at the midnight showings. Mm -hmm. And that is the audience participation that um, Roger Ebert said would really kind of make the movie better. And it it just – it's what makes Rocky Horror Picture Show Rocky Horror Picture Show. Or at the very least, it's what has made it continue on all these years, I think. Yeah, uh, 100%. I mean, I think it's grossed over $120 million now total Yeah, over the years. And this is a movie that did never get a, nas- a nationwide release, which is no. remarkable. And I think it's also the longest-running theatrical film release in movie history, too. It's got to be. Yeah, that's as far as I understand it is. Yeah, the Plaza does it still twice a month. They're doing it tomorrow. Uh, and I'm not going to go tomorrow because uh, Emily's birthday party is tomorrow night. But mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna go soon. And they mercifully started at eleven o'clock <laughs> because when I was thinking about, it, I was like, Am I really going to go somewhere at midnight? <laughs> like, 
listeners that aren't 50 years old yet <laughs> may not understand. You don't go somewhere at midnight anymore no, when you're 50 no. years old. You you've been asleep for a couple of hours by then. <laughs> On on many nights, that is true. And like even the thought of it makes me tired. It, like I, I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. I'm gonna pick out a, a nice time though when my daughter is like staying at my mom's, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I do this. That's awesome. Uh, because I did watch a lot of the um a lot of YouTube videos of the participation, and it just looks like so much fun. So what's interesting about this is that audience participation and everything that kind of you that you would experience when you went to a Rocky Horror Picture Show live screening today uh, just kind of uh, happened organically, little bit by little bit. Mm-hmm. People people around the country and around the world started kind of contributing, and those ideas would just spread and burgeon and become part of the Rocky Horror Picture Show experience. And the whole thing started because the the Waverly showed this this movie enough times, and um, the manager would get the crowd like ready for it by playing the soundtrack to the stage show. Mm-hmm. So by the time people had come a few times to see the movie, they had memorized the lyrics generally because they're pretty catchy lyrics. Yeah. Um, And that kind of created like this idea of um, people who really kind of knew this movie and could sing along and talk along and just – they just kind of absorbed it into their selves. Yeah. So people are singing this song during the run-up to the showing of the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the way, big thanks to – Dave got a lot of this stuff, and we got a lot of our extra stuff from the official Rocky Horror Picture Show fan site, Mm -hmm. RockyHorror.com, founded by Sal Piero, just a a wealth of information. Yep. Uh, And a love letter to the film. It's a a fun website. But uh, they're pre-showing it. They're singing these songs. And then according to the the legend, on Labor Day of 1976, Labor Day weekend, there was uh, a Staten Island kindergarten teacher named, uh, I guess it's Louis or Louis Fariz, and this person was the first person, as far as the legend goes, mm-hmm. to yell something back at the screen uh, when something happened on the screen. And that was when Susan Sarandon gets out in the rain at the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. puts a newspaper over her head uh, to act as an umbrella. Mm-hmm. And supposedly he yelled out, buy an umbrella, you cheap expletive. <laughs> and supposedly that started the callouts. Yeah. And you can actually, if you're watching the movie, you don't even have to have gone to uh, a live showing. Um, you can pick out the exact moment. Like the people who made this movie were knew enough to make a movie, but they also didn't know enough to make a movie that like, you know, moved along really quickly. There's There's this moment where you're watching Brad and Janet get out of the car and then walk around the car. Just stuff that an editor normally would cut out. And so I, 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 just the fact that that was left in and triggered that guy to say that, it's almost like the movie um, encouraged it itself. I just think that's so fascinating. Yeah. It, it, it just definitely seems like a movie where just fate had so many little hands in it, uh, if you believe that kind of thing. <laughs> so people started dressing up a little more and more. And this was mainly in the lead up to Halloween, uh, 1976. Then Halloween came and went, and people were still dressing up. And people started bringing props. Uh, I think the original prop was they would tear up their programs to use as confetti mm-hmm. in the wedding scene. And then they were like, why don't we just bring rice? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they were bringing all kinds of props uh, to use during the film. So now you have people singing along. You have people in costume. Uh, people shouting back at the screen at various uh, well-timed uh, points. And then you have these props. Right. And all of this is happening mostly at the Waverly Theater. But there's theaters in other cities that are showing the movie as well. Um, and so somebody from New York might go see a midnight showing in San Francisco. And all of a sudden, all the stuff that they've been developing in New York, this one New Yorker is just Mm-hmm. schooling the San Francisco Rocky Horror fans, and uh, it just spread very quickly like that. I mean, like, really quickly. And, uh, again, like I was saying earlier, it just became this cohesive whole that now, if you go to, to one of these shows, like, this is what's going to happen. These are the props at these certain times. It's, and all of it just happened organically. Yeah, which is really remarkable in a pre-internet age. yeah that this can spread through word of mouth like that strongly. Uh, But that's exactly what happened. And then, so you've got all these people dressed up. You have people knowing all these songs and the movie by heart, basically. 
And apparently in the uh, balconies of some of these theaters, people would sort of be acting out the movie. And then they were like, why don't we just go down front under the screen? Mm -hmm. uh, or a lot of times there's a stage under the screen in front of the screen. And let's just do it down there. And then the literal reenactment of the full film with full cast was born uh, via something that was dubbed shadow casting. Yeah. I mean, like beat for beat, there are people acting out the movie uh -huh. in front of the movie screen. That is like the 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 gist now of uh, going to see Rocky Horror Picture Show in the theater. And apparently, uh, it, Michael Wolfson is credited for coming up with the Rocky Horror Review, the first organized shadow cast back in 1976-77. Wow. Um, and so he may have been the person who thought of this, at least putting it on stage in front of the screen. But... I mean, it's not just people going in their street clothes, like, acting this out. Like, people are in full costume, mm -hmm. full makeup. Um, I think that depending on riffraff changes um, costumes. So some people come as uh, Igor riffraff. Other people come as sci-fi riffraff. Right. <laughs> um, so they'll be like, they'll alternate who's doing what depending yeah. on the scene. <laughs> and by the way, uh, there is a sci-fi riffraff um, statue uh, in Richard O'Brien's hometown in uh, New Zealand. Oh, wow. I yeah, love that. Yeah, it's pretty cool looking, too. I'm curious how the hierarchy of this, because it's obviously all pre-cast for the shadow cast. Like, I don't think I could just show up as a virgin dressed like Brad and be like, I want to be Brad tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I have no idea. That's a fascinating question. Like, how how does that evolve, like, in a local local place like clearly in atlanta it's organized there's like a group that does it mm -hmm. but i mean like how do you how do you join that group i don't know i guess you know you get on their mailing list you should you show up at their meetings <laughs> right and you start agitating for a role <laughs> right man i foresee chuck's future here <laughs> oh i look good in a corset too uh, so Richard O'Brien gets wind of this, um, in the seventies that what's going on and is just obviously, as you would expect, completely knocked out and flattered. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, this movie has it all. It's fun. It's campy. You got the audience up there. You've got the movie playing. You've got these people acting it out. I'm three for three, uh, and not in a, in a haughty way, but just super proud, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then shadow casting spread. There's all kinds of midnight movies now where people shadow cast, um, and one that, that uh, is a great one to check out if you ever can, and very heavily influenced music-wise too, I think, uh, was is uh, Hedvig and the Angry Inch. Yeah, they also do Clue, apparently, which is another Tim Curry great uh, film. Oh, God, so good. So if you go, like we said, you are a virgin, and at the very beginning of the show, somebody will come out with a microphone and um, get everybody pumped up and ask the virgins to all stand up. And once you stand up, people around you will probably put a V on your forehead with lipstick. <laughs> that's the first thing that's probably going to happen to you. I love it. The, that'll, that's the worst thing that's going to happen. Yeah. Just so, say yes is what right. I recommend. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a great way to put it, Chuck. Um, the, the thing to remember throughout all this is um, Dave puts it really, really well. They're not trying to scare you away. They want yeah. you to come back again. Uh, this is just part of, like, this ritual, this process that's developed over the decades. Um, and there's some things that you can expect uh, and can prepare yourself ahead of time. There's tons of off-color jokes, mm -hmm. uh, mostly sex jokes. They're almost exclusively sex jokes, um, sophomoric sex jokes. <laughs> you can't expect to hear the movie. You're not going to sit down and watch a movie. That's not what you're going to do. It reminds me of, um, remember, I, I can't remember what concert it was on The Simpsons, but everybody else is standing up and Otto's sitting down. <laughs> You know, the rocker bus driver? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he goes, sit down, sit down. You're ruining it for the rest of us. I can just imagine somebody going to a midnight screening of Rocky Horror Picture Show and just expecting to sit there and watch the movie, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you have hang-ups and if you're maybe a little prude about things, like, this may not be the experience for you because there will be people in various states of undress, uh, like you mentioned, tons of body-body sex jokes. Mm -hmm. And it's just a sort of a raucous uh, good time. Um, but again, my recommendation, this is what I'm going to do, 
is just go and say yes to everything. If you're a virgin, they may um, drag you up there and teach you the time warp during that mm-hmm. point in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they you might get uh, sprayed when when it's the rain. I mean, I think everyone kind of gets sprayed when it right. rains. I but, think they tend to aim for the virgins. So. <laughs> yeah, but just again, if you're not up for sort of a fun interactive. Uh, multimedia experience, then maybe just don't go. Right. Yeah. And if you are a prude, this is your big chance to break out of your shell. Yeah, totally. So, Chuck, I say we take another break and we'll uh, come back with more on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Burning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you should know. Um, we should probably say we've been using some antiquated terms for transgender people, but it's because it's part of the movie. Yeah. And I think the movie is so iconic and so in favor of gender fluidity, and mm-hmm. this is decades before where we are today when gender fluidity has really broken out and, I mean, has basically become mainstream in a lot of ways. Um, this is f- 45, almost 50 years before, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that the popularity and the iconicness of the movie has actually kind of given it a pass that it, no one's offended by by the use of transvestite or transsexual in 
the context of that movie. Yeah, I think everyone understands these were the terms of the time uh, when they did the remake with Laverne Cox, who is uh, a new uh, Laverne Cox from Orange is the New Black, but a great transgender actress uh, to play Frankenfurter. I think she was even like, oh, you know, should we update this a little bit? And then finally decided, no, the song is so iconic. These were the terms of the day. And again, it's a, it is a, a blatant love letter. And I believe Richard O'Brien identifies as trans, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it is for this group of people, this group of people who felt like they were outsiders, who maybe didn't belong in, uh, in mainstream society. And these are the people who got dressed up and who went down there and were so creative and sort of building this cult around it. Like, it is a very, and always has been, a very safe space yeah. for for that to occur. And so um, it's just a great movie for a lot of reasons, and that's certainly one of them. Yeah, I can't imagine how many kids in, like, Indiana and Iowa and mm-hmm. Kansas and Georgia uh, were just had the opportunity to find themselves when they found, like, midnight showings of Rocky Horror Picture Show and, like, the people who were there that were like them, that were, and this was the only place in their life that they could go and just be themselves like that. It's really sad to think of, but it's also really heartening to think that they finally did find that place, you know? Absolutely, and, you know, what it did was it was like um, it created an excuse to put on the corset and the high heels. Uh, if Although, do you, you were... really need an excuse? <laughs> But if you were someone struggling with, uh, you know, in the 1970s, especially with uh, with your gender fluidity and like just to have a reason like, no, mom and dad, like it's a movie thing. You wear these costumes and like it gave them a reason to actually go and be themselves. And Tim Curry over the years and Richard O'Brien have both received, you know, just hundreds and thousands of of letters and and shout outs from people that said, you know, that confirm all of this. Right. They said, like, I was able to be myself and I was able to come out because of you and because of this film and what it did. So it's been a really sort of heartwarming thing, I think, um, for the for the creators and the actors. Yeah, no, for sure. And what I again, one of the other reasons that it gets a pass is because that that show is so um, reaffirming mm-hmm. that one of Tim Curry's uh, lines is actually in one of the songs. It's don't dream it, be it. Mm-hmm. And um People just latch on to that because if you just stop and think about what it's saying, like that's 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 kind of all you need to know. It's yeah. almost like the campy version of uh, Yoda's "There do or do not, there is no try" <laughs> kind of thing. You know, if you build it, they will come. There are all sorts of classic uh, movie lines. There are, <laughs> and that is one of them for sure. No, it is it is a super empowering statement, and uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where I don't think Richard O'Brien really maybe thought about that specific line too much at the time, mm-hmm. but it ends up having so much meaning later on. Uh, and, you know, kind of a fun side story that we didn't get to earlier, but Tim Curry lived near the Waverly uh, in Greenwich Village in New York when this was going on and apparently wanted to go and, like, make an appearance and just knock everyone's socks off. Yeah. And called ahead to the theater, um, even showed up. Um, they let him in. And then I guess it was a couple of, it sounds like a couple of rogue theater attendants that hadn't let him in were like, no, this guy's a fake. Like, let's get him out of here. And they Mm -hmm. literally threw Tim Curry out. Wow. He gets incensed, gets his passport and shows them. And I think it was like the manager or somebody who had the authority to let him back in was like, I'm so sorry. You come back in. And he was like, I wouldn't dream of it. And he left. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. That's how you show him, Curry. I guess so. He's like, I've got a kitten to hold in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, there's some other pretty neat little things about the movie, too. Um, one of the ones that I love is uh, Easter eggs. Um, there are actual Easter eggs mm-hmm. I- hidden in the movie unintentionally because apparently they had an Easter egg hunt on the set and um, they didn't find them all. <laughs> So if you really know what to look for, I, I, I didn't see them, but uh, you can find three different Easter eggs throughout the movie. And that's not actually the, the term or where the term Easter egg comes from, right. strangely enough. Apparently, that was from an Atari game developer from 1980. Uh, that, that's who really coined that term and where it came into use from. 
I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, from our Nintendo episode, that was Warren Robinette who wrote the game Adventure and that had the first Easter egg. Oh, is that right? I'm pretty sure. I saw a guy named Steve Wright. Oh, really? Yeah. Coin the term? Yeah. Oh, okay. I think the first Easter egg was in Adventure, though, but maybe someone I gotcha. else coined the term. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what else, Chuck? Well, uh, Susan Sarandon, who was, uh, they were all very young. They were all in their sort of late 20s, early 30s when they were making this. Um, she got pneumonia um, not too long after she got there. And they shot this movie at, uh, at a real old English castle named Oakley Court, which is now a luxury hotel, mm-hmm. uh, even though I think at the time it was falling apart such that the owners wanted to raise the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so they shoot it in this legit drafty old castle. She gets there. She's got pneumonia. She's half undressed for half the movie. There's a scene in a swimming pool. She's freezing to death and feverish, you know, those cold chills. Right. And apparently just had a, a pretty rough go, but was like game through all of it. Well, even worse, and I saw this confirmed by her, um, she was like, you have to get me some heated place to, to like, be sick in between takes. Uh, so they gave her a trailer, and it did, in fact, have heat. There were space heaters in it, but they ended up burning the trailer down. <laughs> <laughs> it was that kind of shoot. That's amazing. Uh, another bit of trivia that all Rocky Horror fans know, but those disembodied lips at the beginning uh, were the lips of Patricia Quinn, who played uh, Magenta and Usherette, but, uh, and signed on with the idea that she was going to sing that song. And she said she loved it. I think she said it was like the most beautiful song she'd ever heard mm-hmm. at the time. But when it came time to actually sing the song, Richard O'Brien sang it, and Patricia Quinn, uh, I think somewhat disappointedly, uh, lip-synced it. She was really mad about that. She had basically joined the cast originally uh, for the stage show to, to because of that song. And so she thought she would have the opportunity to do it in the movie. And I guess he had her sing. And she didn't find out until the movie was released, till she saw it, that she, she wasn't the one who was singing it at the beginning. Not cool. No, but I, I think it was a good move. Because if you listen, I don't think it would be the same with her singing. Yeah, and I think it, it definitely, like you said with Meatloaf, was uh, he had been in Hair right before this. Mm-hmm. He had a duo album with this woman, um, and he was sort of around, but he definitely was not a big star at all. And, and Rocky Horror, his role as Eddie, mm-hmm. and uh, especially the, the great, great song, uh, Hot Patootie, Bless My Soul, <laughs> yeah. uh, such a good song. Um, I think people saw that, and they were like, there's something to this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Because he plays the part really, really well. I mean, he does a great great job. Um, There's a lot of lore around it, too, uh, that those people that the producers offered a bigger budget to um, Richard O'Brien and Jim Sharman to to make the movie. Uh, Another thing, too, Chuck, that I found fascinating, um, you mentioned before that the producers had wanted to kind of stack the film version with, like, rock stars. Yeah. Um, There's tons of legends about who those were. Cher, David Bowie, Mick Jagger— um, as mm, Dr. Frankenfurter. Jack- would have been pretty good, actually. I, yeah, but, yeah, no. He's huh. the only person I could see uh, doing justice to that role. Let me just say that. I'm not I, saying better be, than Tim Curry, but. It'd be fascinating to go see for sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, w- the one that does seem to be actually legitimate, that the producers actually did float, was Elvis as Eddie, <laughs> replacing Meatloaf with Elvis. 76 Elvis? Wow. Yeah. That was near the end. Yeah. It, it was basically, it would be a cool cameo for him. That would have been, oh, man, I'm just trying to wrap my head around what that would have been like. I mean, he would have been great in that role and singing that number, but can you imagine what kind of, like, upheaval that would have thrown that production into? Oh, yeah. I to mean, bring it would Elvis have in? completely imbalanced the movie, too. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Be, you know, you've got all these people who are doing this <laughs> thing because they love it, and there's Elvis, too, you know? Yeah, like Vegas Elvis. Yeah, exactly. Did you see that movie yet, the Elvis movie? Uh, no, another Boz Lerman one? Yeah. No, I haven't seen it. It's worth seeing. It's, it's it was. I think I might have even mentioned it before. It's a bit much, but the... The actor does such a great job in recreating yeah. those uh, performances. It's it's worth it for that. Um, there's also a little-known 
sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show. I did not know this until a couple days ago. Yeah, I knew about it. I've never seen it. Uh -huh. It's called Shock Treatment, right? Yeah, and it was sort of a loose sequel. Uh, did not catch on, obviously, like Rocky Horror did at all. It was it was basically a big flop. Yeah. Uh, I just remember seeing, when I worked at the video store in Athens at Vision Video, I remember seeing the cover uh, of Shock Treatment, and I was like, what is this even? Mm -hmm. And then found out later that it was a, a sequel. Gotcha. Um, you got anything else? I got nothing else. I'm going to go. I encourage... Uh, everyone else to go. That maybe that'd be fun to get some stuff you should know. Local listeners to all go on a certain night. That's a great idea. Also, if you want to find, you know, where you can see one by uh, your house, uh, the Rocky Horror uh, site, RockyHorror.com, um, actually has a pretty good list around the country, and I think around the world too, because they do it in England. But I've heard they are way more reserved than one you would go to in America. Yeah, I think so. So that's it for Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope it was worth it. Stuff You Should Know Army, thanks for the idea. Uh, and since I said thanks for the idea, it's time for listener mail. Uh, yeah, before we get into that, though, we always like to give our end of the year well wishings. Yeah. Uh, to everyone who got us through another year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe your lovely wife has a birthday coming up, too, right? Yeah, when this comes out, it'll be right around Yumi's birthday. Happy birthday. And happy really birthday. coolly, in real time, it's right around Emily's birthday. So happy birthday to Emily, too. <laughs> That's right. Her birthday's in a few days. Yeah, very uh, cool. So thanks, everyone. You know, it's been a rough few years, but I think 2022 shone a little light on us all. And uh, we hope that continues. And, and thanks for hanging in there and letting us keep our jobs again. Yeah, well said, Chuck. You could all fire us. Please don't, though. <laughs> All you have to do is stop listening and we're gone. You should stop putting ideas in people's heads, Chuck. Agreed. Yeah. Well, from us and from Jerry and all of the gang who work on Stuff You Should Know, Happy New Year, everybody. All right. So we will do a listener mail from the Shakespeare episode about whether Shakespeare really wrote all that stuff. That is maybe one. That's my new favorite episode. Oh, yeah? I loved that episode. I thought it was so fascinating. It huh. was just a really good episode. Awesome. I love that. Uh, hey, guys, enjoyed the podcast. I have to admit I am an Oxfordian believer that the 17th Earl of Oxford was the real Shakespeare. Oh, wow. Uh, many facts about the Earl's life and its reflection in the plays are very convincing. But I also was intrigued by the Earl's own family crest being a lion brandishing a spear. Uh, the history of the Earl being a part of the Elizabethan court life as well as his travels to Italy and his family life mirror so much in the plays. I had the bad form when visiting Stratford-upon-Avon, uh, the Shakespeare family home there, having a discussion with another visitor about Edward de Vere possibly being the true Shakespeare. Oh, and the boy. tour guide was rushing us out. Wow. Uh, thanks for the fun discussion. That is from Dana B. Goward. Dana got booted from Stratford-upon-Avon. I love it. Run out of town. <laughs> I could see that being a bad place to mention that. Yeah, I was hoping we would hear from uh, some Oxfordians, though. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, thanks a lot, Dana. Thanks for getting in touch. And if you want to be like Dana, everybody, you can get in touch with us as well. Send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. 
I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.